You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hi, welcome to Comeback City, where we explore Detroit's past, present, and future. Today, we are talking about the Detroit Public Library, a magnificent building that is also an important resource. This episode is brought to you by Spectacular Strolls. Spectacular Strolls offers 15 historic walks in Detroit. Each walk is a self-guided 20-minute tour. Visit SpectacularStrolls.com to order your next Detroit history adventure. I'm Linda Shepard, and with me today is my co-host, Ed Brohard, and a special guest, Johanna Hennen. Hi, Johanna. How you doing? Good. I'm good. My name's still Latrell. It is? <laughs> it is. Oh. Yeah, I didn't change it after marriage. Oh, sorry <laughs> no, about that, Johanna. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> Hi, Johanna. Hi. Hey, Ed. How you doing? Good, Linda. So we're talking about the library. Um, where should we begin? I mean, it is such a gorgeous building. I well, mean, first of all, it strikes me that this is very appropriate. We're doing this because we've had some great shows on the cultural center. We've talked about Wayne State University. We've talked about the DIA, the African American uh, Museum. We've talked about the uh, Charles Wright African American Museum. Uh, and this sits right in the middle of all of those. It's really between them all. And so it seems like a, a perfect completion of our talk about the cultural center in Detroit. You know, it's almost like a little bit of a bridge between, um, say, the cultural center and Wayne State University. It's kind of right smack in the middle of both of them. It all. is. It's got entrances on both sides. And sometimes when you go from Wayne State to the uh, Detroit Institute of Arts, you can walk right through the library to you get from one to the can. other. Yeah, it's the fastest way. Right. And what did you think of the building, Johanna? I know you visited it recently. and It was gorgeous from the outside. And like, so we, we saw the building from one side of it and you see the beautiful architecture and, um, and the old style of architecture. And then you walk around and it's the 1960s architecture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I much prefer the one side to the other. Um, we were talking the today. Older with, right, yeah, the older side. Right. The older side, exactly, um, to the 1960s. And I was talking today, like, what did people, what were they thinking in the 1960s? What was, I mean, what was the um, the name of Brutalism. Brutalism. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I kind of disagree in that, not that I I like the newer part better. Um, I think you can improve on that beautiful um, original building. But I I think they they actually blended it quite well with materials. I mean, the 60s was going to be... As far as those It was going to be Mm -hmm. minimalist. It wasn't going to have all the ornamentation that just wasn't done. Uh, And, you know, it's it's very interesting. You probably looked in your research that uh, there's a real continuity because the architect of the original building that was opened in 21 was Cass Gilbert, one of the great American architects who did so many iconic things, including the Supreme Court building. That was his last. In Washington. (laughs) In Washington. He also did uh, state capitals and uh, 
West Virginia and, and it is Minnesota. Just a gorgeous building. I mean, if you were standing at the Detroit Institute of Arts and looking across the street at the library, I mean, and you just sit there and or stand there and take a look at it. I mean, the arches, the mm-hmm. windows, yeah, the arches. it is a perfect building. It's a beautiful um modern 20th century take on a Renaissance yes. palatial building. Mm-hmm. It's in the style of the Renaissance. Uh, of course, that style where you imitate classical architecture, whether it be uh, Romanesque Is that Beaux or Art? Beaux-Arts. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Beaux-Arts. So Art. popular at the turn of the century. Yeah, right? it was very much. And it was always monumental. They were huge buildings. Uh, they were meant to be seen, you know, from a distance and it really commanded the landscape. And uh, it's a perfect mate, of course, with the uh, Detroit Institute Arts uh, of Arts across the street. Right across the street. Yeah. yeah, they're the same kind of scale, slightly different style, uh, different architects. But it, You know, the whole Beaux-Arts thing, you know, I think it was so popular at that time. And mm-hmm. then it went out of fashion. I think right. people just thought it was too old-fashioned or something. But now... I mean, it's just so classically beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. it. I, at the time, I heard that the time that the library was built, the Detroiters said it was the most beautiful building in the world. And I don't mm. know if that's exaggeration, <laughs> but it is very, very pretty. And, it really you know, is very beautiful. From, from, well, you know, Linda and I have talked about um, the the transformation Detroit went to went through in the early part of the century and up, especially culminating in the twenties where they really wanted to um, take the mantle of being a world-class city. Paris of the Midwest. Paris of the Midwest. And they weren't doing it in an ironic sense then. No. (laughs) I mean, they were saying, we're going to create a beautiful city. There was even a movement called the City Beautiful Movement. And I love that name. Yeah. And and so they wanted the very best. You know, the population was was rising tremendously. Um, the, the you know it was a financial capital. It was certainly the industrial capital so of the country. So many of our mm-hmm. stories have been about the 1920s yeah. when Detroit was an absolute boom town. Yes, absolutely. mostly because of the automobile and. The factories and mm-hmm. the five dollar a day wage. Right, which we've it was, gone through this a million times. Sure, it was rivaling Chicago, and even uh, you know, felt they might surpass Chicago in the next couple decades. And of course, a series of unfortunate events transpired, uh, mainly the Great Depression, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know, in boom times, Detroit was always great, and when it wasn't so good, it hit Detroit worse than most. So. But back to the additions, yeah. those wings so, and the backside. So, so it's his son, I Cass know. Gilbert son. Oh, Jr. That that designed. The I back. mean, to me, it just looks like Ayn Rand, like Fountainhead. Yeah, you know? it definitely so, like, looks like that. Yeah, from that. I mean. It's very beautiful in its own style. (laughs) Well, I think if you see it from the side, you get that because it's uh, like huge slabs of polished marble, you know. Um, Although I I think they matched it fairly well to the the front of the building. Maybe not quite as well as the wings of the DIA across the street. Right. But um, at the back, you know, you have a, a modernist entrance and that really is the main business entrance now off Cass Avenue. Right. That's where the circulation desk and information and all of that yes. is. 
And uh, but they've they've done that kind of uh, red sort of Cranbrook looking. Um, it does you know. have that kind of Cranbrook. Yeah, and it's got it. a mural across the top right. uh, in mosaic. So I think huge you know, mosaic. I think they did a, a fairly good job. They. They didn't have, you know, you can't see it from a distance on that side. No. So I think that makes a difference too. Part of the wonderful uh, effect you get from the front of the old building is that it's set well back from um, from Woodward Avenue, and um, it's it's risen up too. You go up a number of steps to right. get up mm-hmm. to it. You do. So it's yeah, it, it has a very monumental and look. And especially if you're over at the Detroit Institute of Art mm-hmm. and looking at it. Yes. Yeah. You know, you really get right. the full effect. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, yeah, so, you know, it's kind of a story. Johanna and I were talking about um, Andrew Carnegie. Mm-hmm. And um, what an interesting guy. Yeah, the great philanthropist. Mm-hmm. I know. The 20th century. Has a mixed legacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and so many of them do. I mean, a lot of this philanthropy was kind of an atonement. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> for earlier sins, <laughs> you know. It could be. I mean, yes, they polluted the country and they exploited workers and they uh, created an awful lot of ugliness. But by the same token, they pumped – Huge amounts of resources into the country, and you know, at a certain point, they uh, decided they wanted to do something good. Now, it may have been doing well by doing good, but you know, uh, right. they left. Many of them left tremendous legacies. The formulation. I so I read about Andrew Carnegie that he believed that you should divide your life in thirds, mm-hmm. and that the first third should be education. You should learn as much as you can. The second third should be making money. You should make as much money mm-hmm. as you can. Right. And then the third part of your life is you should give away as much money as right. you can. Right. And so then at the end of his life, he wrote um, in his writings, for the man who dies rich dies disgraced. Yes. And he didn't believe you can't take it with you for him. Right. Um, right. And I think that's interesting um, in a way. I mean, it's really – of course, it's wonderful mm-hmm. to be a philanthropist and give away all your money. And he mm-hmm. um, certainly um, gave so much into the libraries in the United States. Yeah. And also um, education, the sciences, and also world peace. World peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the Carnegie Foundation in New right. York, for National Peace, the Carnegie Endowment. Um, and they still do a lot of good work. Um, there's a wonderful academic journal that comes from um, the Carnegie Endowment. And um, it's – and Originally, his ideas started um, for world peace. I mean, he died before the League of Nations came about. Right. Um, but he, um, from his ideas, birthed um, the League of Nations, which would eventually um, it, that failed. But then the UN you, rose United out of the United ashes. Nations, of sure. The, uh-huh. Yeah. No, that that's true. Well, it's hard to dislike a guy who put a lot of importance into books and free libraries. Yeah. And I mean, and what these, a wonderful thing. Yeah, and this was across the country. I mean, oh, yeah. in cities big mm-hmm. and small. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, you know, I've seen that Carnegie name on many an old building. Uh, Ma- many places that had had no real, um, you know, option for for learning and books and, and reading. It it made that available to people who mm-hmm. had never Urban experienced. And yeah, yeah, and rural, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I've been to um, – I think it's a museum now in Traverse City. It was a – Carnegie uh, Library there. It's right on 6th Street, which is the historic street downtown uh, Traverse City. And, you know, I've noticed, you know, little towns 
there's the Carnegie Library. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How wonderful. Yeah. It is It is really wonderful, too. And I think especially in these smaller towns that libraries can have an increasingly important role. I mean, too, of course, mm-hmm. and like they have a huge role in these big cities, but also in smaller towns, you know, um, like teenagers going to the library. That's right. Books. And many they people, you know, read. say that, oh, the, the whole printed page is going to be a thing of the past. But I really don't think that's true. You know, I mean, all, all the um, – Dire warnings of of books just disappearing. Well, I you, you know, know I think we're going to kind of talk about that when we get into the future of the library. But you know, um, th- I think libraries are evolving and changing, and right. you know, like anything else, they kind of have to. Right. Right. So, but back to the past, nineteen twelve. That's when the city commissioned Cass Gilbert to construct the three floor library. In the Italian Renaissance style. And it was delayed a little bit because of uh, World, World War, War I. I. Mm-hmm. And um, finally, they had it, they put it together Vermont marble, serpentine Italian marble. And they carved the phrase, knowledge is power, into the marble above the main entrance on Woodward Avenue. Right. I love that. Yeah. And I love that uh, over the, you know, along the the uh, cornice up at the top, um, etched into the building are is the name of great thinkers of the past. You know, you have Aristotle and Socrates, and you know the great um, philosophers, right? The the great philosophers. It's very clear that it's hardening back to uh, the classical Greek and Roman model. You know, knowledge is power. Yeah, knowledge is power. So I am I am a philosopher and my husband joked. He's like, one day maybe your can, name can be up there. <laughs> and then I had a dark thought that I shared with him. I was like, well, they don't put women on those. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they do, though. They do. And now at Oxford University, they used to have um, uh, portraits of all the old um, deans mm-hmm. at of the schools and they were all men. And then there was a push to get portraits of women up. And they say, well, we haven't had enough deans who are women yet. You say, well, that's a reason in and of itself. <laughs> that's right. There <laughs> have you women go. Deans yeah. and then yes. Get the women portraits yes. up there. <laughs> so I'd like to talk about a couple of specific locations within the library. Um, first, the Burton Collection, mm-hmm. which I know your wife has a lot of experience with. Yeah. Well, um, my wife Yvonne, a number of years ago, well, really be- before she and I retired, but uh, especially since, um, have gotten very interested in genealogy. Um, I happen to, uh, in in her case, she is an immigrant. She was born in the Netherlands and came here as a little girl in the 1950s. So you know, there's that that sense of wanting con- to connect with her family because so few of them are actually here. And uh, so uh, she's done a lot with that. Uh, in my case, I'm um, on my mother's side from a Mayflower family. My middle name is Standish. My 12th great-grandfather was Miles Standish, who was the military guy in among the pilgrims uh, that landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620. My uh, uh, his daughter, Laura, who my mother was named for, L-O-R-A, was the first pilgrim girl who oh, was born. I did not here. realize that. Yeah, wow. she was born here in the New World. And so, yeah, so um, it was 
Uh, it's always been kind of a big deal just being an old New England family, you know. And uh, if I so if I go back genealogically, I see all these names, you know, that because it wasn't a huge gene pool then, you know. And so uh, there was a lot of marriage between the different founding families and yeah all these names come up so yeah they're all they're all relatives so that's kind of fun yeah i've really uh used the burton collection um quite a bit recently for you know basically for the comeback city podcast mm -hmm. and you know i hadn't really used it um Previous to that, and the first time I went over there was when I was uh, researching uh, J.L. Hudson. Mm -hmm. And I went to the Burton Collection, and I went up to the desk, and I said to the clerk, um, I'm looking for research on J.L. Hudson. And they said, give us 10, 15 minutes. And they came back with a folder that had all the newspaper articles from the early 1900s, when he died, uh, because he died overseas and they shipped his body back and they had pictures of his home on Boston Boulevard. And these were the actual newspapers that Ex were Somebody so had old. actually cut it out. Someone yeah. had actually cut yes, it right. out. And they were like, I was afraid to touch them. They were so crumbling. Did you feel so like old. it was so much responsibility I to have it in your like hands? That. Right. Like you weren't worthy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And since then, you know, I've done that several times when we did the Edsel Ford. Mm -hmm. And you get – now, Edsel Ford, I did notice they had laminated the pieces of – newspaper about him. But I mean, you're getting the real thing there. You're getting the real thing. It is thing. amazing and, that they have all this right they there. They assess whether somebody is really doing serious research. They're not, you know, they don't want, they're not out for the people just to paw through and, no. and mix up and, you know, perhaps destroy. Uh, oh, no, I had to sign my yeah. name and put my address. That's right. You write it down on the cards and everything. and everything. And then they have runners that go into the archives I mean, and find all this. It is and unbelievable. Bring it out. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really great. Yeah. So the Burton Historical Collection began as the private library of Clarence Monroe Burton, a prominent attorney and Detroit historiographer. And um, his original intention was to assemble a collection on the history of Detroit. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, he put together a collection that is considered one of the most important private historical collections in the country at this point. The Burton Collection uh, offers anyone who comes and signs their name and gives them their information, information, uh their holdings include books, manuscripts, maps, newspapers, photographs, family histories, church records, military records, obituaries, land records. It's kind of an amazing thing. Yeah, it really is. And um, one of the things that I love at the Burton, uh, because my mother's family, all Many of them, a whole branch of it, came out to Detroit to seek their fortune uh, a lot, along with a lot of people uh, that came out from the east um, and uh, were here. Some are, are still here and, and some wound up going back, but uh, they lived in Detroit for some time. So in doing the family research, 
Uh, you want to find out where they lived and how they lived and all of this. And a really great resource for this is using the city directories. Have you ever seen those? No. The city directories were actually put out by the business community. Um, they wanted to know who their customers were, okay? And so these are these encyclopedic things. They're probably about – Oh, I think dimensionally there may be two feet high by one and a half feet. No, maybe two by three even. They're huge. They're like giant ledgers. You you take one down off the shelf and you spread it out on a big ledger and it's got every single person that lives in the city. Who lives in the household? Um, it will sometimes say wife. It was they, – they realized that a lot of these people were not homeowners. So if you wanted to find out where people lived and everything, you couldn't necessarily go through uh, deeds or ownership because so many of them were renters. Many of them were immigrants. So it was important for the business community to know um, – Who was living who, where? Who was all, mm -hmm. all these families, the demographics. And uh, it gives a lot of information. It gives occupation. It gives uh, children's names. It gives other people living in the household. It's almost like a census. Is it a yearly publication? Every year and it would be constantly updated and um, uh, they would have like ad – local ads sort of interspersed through it, you know. So you, you could see that there was definitely a commercial aspect to this. Um, but it was fascinating if they owned a business and where they were employed. So you could actually take a person and you could see how they moved from one address to another. One case in point was uh, an uncle, a great uncle, Uncle Charles, who had come out from Massachusetts and kind of built his fortune out here. But then the depression hit and his fortune began to disappear. And it's so interesting to go year by year and see how his address changed. Oh. And the addresses is he got moving on up? better and better and better. And then <laughs> they started moving down, down, down. Oh. You know? And you, you could actually kind of follow that. And if you knew anything about the geography of the city, you knew – Oh, yeah. I see what was How happening with this guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, very interesting to go through that. Absolutely. So um, another favorite of mine at the library are the murals, mm -hmm. those gorgeous murals. Uh, Gary Melcher, his mural series, they're all over the place in that library. And um, they're from the – he he put them together in the early 1920s, and uh, as far as I know, um, it's kind of under debate whose idea it was, but um, they decided that he would portray historical and allegorical subjects relating to the settling of Detroit. Uh, the murals include the landing of Cadillac's wife, the conspiracy of Pontiac, Spirit of the Northwest, and they're large and they're beautiful. They they're are. almost dreamy looking. Mm -hmm. You know, they've just got a very different uh, kind of atmosphere connected to them. Right. I think that was kind of a, a big thing in the um, in the 1920s to do these, you know, large landscapes that were historical or symbolic. Um, my high school, I went to Don Darrow High School in Royal Oak. Uh, which is now the middle school. Um, and we had in the auditorium, we had a huge mural 
Now, it wasn't maybe a great masterpiece, but it was so interesting, you know, to every time you'd go in for an assembly or something, you'd see this great mural of all these people and one was painting a picture of another and, you know, it was like heroic figures and thought, how cool is this? Aren't you know? murals popping up all over Detroit now? They uh, are. Murals yeah. are everywhere. Uh-huh. And so many of them are so beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't believe how gorgeous the murals of Detroit are. Right. Some of them are in traditional style. Some of them have kind of a uh, sort of a, a, a pop flavor to them, psychedelic. I mean, a lot of it kind of derives from street art, but done at such a high level, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's graffiti taken yeah. to the nth degree. Absolutely. And it's really sad they're going to be covering up uh, the two murals. Uh, yeah, the Shepherd Ferry yes, and the other I one. Know. Yeah, they're, that, Why would they cover those up? Uh, they're putting an addition on the building. Oh. On the building, and it's going to kind of wrap right around so there's no one to see it, but they're not going to take them down. No. You just know they're there. <laughs> They'll be hidden. I know. Mm-hmm. I, so do these murals in the library, do you think, like, they captured what was the idea of the mythos, like the mythos of Detroit I think at some so. point? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. now, like, are there murals now that sort of capture that sort of mythos that different? Like, well, I think you do. When you go around the city, you, uh-huh. you definitely see that. Absolutely. Yeah, without right. a doubt. And you see also certainly the changing demographic, the movement to a predominantly African-American city, you know. Right. Uh, immigrant populations, the uh, large – Hispanic population, and uh, so you see you see these traditions, and you see these kinds of uh, art and styles. I mean, we've got everything from just really, really basic graffiti on the Dequinder Cot mm-hmm. to world class art. You know, uh, in a mural form. Well, we talked about this last time, but Detroit is is kind of the world's canvas now. People are coming from all over. I mean, they're coming from, um, you know, um, from from Europe, Germany. I mean, there's a lot of artists that actually come to Detroit and wind up staying here for, you know, some time or even permanently um, because they see Detroit as kind of an exquisite place to um, to sort of ply their art. You know, it's um, uh, because there's been so much urban renewal and Comeback city. Uh, comeback city. And so uh, in a lot of areas, there really is kind of a blank canvas, you know? Um, Literally. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's pretty exciting. Um, another thing that um, I remember is – and this is more recent. There's a, a really neat kind of mur- uh, mosaic portrait of Copernicus. Right. Yeah. As you go from the back of the old building into the new wing and it's, you know, brightly colored and um, it was donated because he's he's uh, so important in the scientific community to the Polish population. That's right. And it was actually donated by – In 1974. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In honor of Copernicus – Five hundredth birthday. That's Wait, why right. was he, why is it so important to the Polish? Community? Because he was Polish, and he uh-huh. was one of the you know great Renaissance thinkers, Polish and, and mathematician, and astronomer. Astronomer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, yeah, they they wanted to um, have uh, you know, something that kind of represented the the, the Polish community uh, in the Institute of Arts, and it's really pretty. 
Yeah, it was a little bit out of the way, but um, the Friends Foundation has uh, used uh, put in a installed a spotlight that now illuminates the mosaic, and uh, it's a lot more visible. Right, it's very pretty. One of the things you notice down there is that grand staircase, oh, and that. it goes up to the second and third levels, and that is just awesome because you you. It's monumental. It's a double staircase, and uh, it goes up into the huge upper rooms, the reading rooms, the the art, um, art and music section, um, with massive windows, wonderful direct light coming in, the murals that, of course, you see, and then these unbelievable ceilings that are all done in uh, – and each room is a little different. And they're uh, done in kind of classical Renaissance style. I mean, they're not just plain ceilings. No. Everything about it is very beautiful. Yeah. So um, there's also a bust of Copernicus on the library's northeast lawn. That's right. He's inside and outside. He's inside (laughs) and outside. So a couple of other kind of hidden treasures – Stalin's chest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in. Uh, it was. It belonged to a member of the Russian royal family, and evidentially, evidentially came into the possession of dictator Joseph Stalin, who gave it to Ford Motor Company's Charles Sorensen in thanks for establishing Russian auto plants during World War II. Yeah, remember when we talked about Edsel Ford, and we talked about that period of time where there was. Uh, you know, during the during World War II, of course, we were allies with Russia, and um, they were very impressed. Uh, he, Ford might have been, you know, an evil capitalist, but they really admired his ability to build things and factories, uh, you know, and factories. <laughs> Ingenuity, and, yeah, mm-hmm. and so um, uh, people from Ford, like Sorensen, who was chief engineer went there and helped them set up their whole factory system. I have to say, for all of the um, Detroit, like, capitalism and the capitalists, they had a lot of communist friends, you know. Yeah. They really did. <laughs> There's a lot of partnerships between the capitalists and the Well, we talked about that in our uh, podcast about Albert Kahn. Yeah, yeah. He was commissioned to go over to Russia to help them build factories. That's right. That's right. I mean, they admired the Packard, Packard plan, his masterpiece, and and uh, and of course the Rouge plant, his ultimate masterpiece. And uh, yeah, they they brought him there to consult for sure. Yeah. When you first today talked about Stalin's chest, though, I thought you meant like his hairy chest. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How do they get Stalin's chest? Yeah, that's oh, that's creepy. <laughs> Whoa! I don't think I'd want to see that. <laughs> <coughs> For sure. But what's inside of it? What's inside of this, this chest? I do not know. Mm-hmm. It's a jewel chest, mm-hmm. an ornate steel jewel chest. Mm-hmm. So it was something with the Romanovs or it was, yeah. 
This is a good question. We should go over what's, there and <laughs> what's ask him what's inside. I'm having, like, I'm having dark thoughts that I don't know are appropriate for the podcast, so I'll keep them to myself. They involve what happened when Stalin was in charge of Russia, so I'll keep That's them. right. Uh-oh. Yeah, gulag stuff. Mm, exactly. Could be really bad. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe it's a fifth of vodka. Maybe it's a Fabergé egg. Who knows? That's what I'm you know. thinking. <laughs> it's for probably sure. empty. But, you know, yeah, in the 60s, you know, they decided to do that expansion. And I know, you know, we talked about how it was Cass Gilbert's son. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, he, it wasn't, you know, a done deal just hiring him. The city uh, requested proposals from architects nationwide. And he was the winner. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't that they said, oh, well, we'll give it to the kid. No. Um, it was, you know, they they did a nationwide search and they just had the best proposal, I guess. Um, so yeah, that that's very interesting. Uh, did you know that Cass Gilbert was also, um, you know, we talked about all the things that he was, uh, his great creations. Uh, one of it is one of our favorites on Belle Isle, the Scott Fountain. Oh, that's Cass Gilbert. That's Cass Gilbert. Yeah, yeah. He designed oh, the. Oh my uh, gosh! He I didn't, love that. He fountain. didn't sculpt the the figures, but he designed the entire. And that fountain. is an absolutely gorgeous work yeah. of art. Yeah, so Detroit it's enormous. Detroit has a couple major Cass Gilbert masterpieces. You know? Absolutely. He also did the Woolworth Building. Uh, right. At the time, in the New tallest York. building in the world, and in, in it was yeah. the tallest. Really, it was when the Woolworth Building back in the early. 20th century was built. Uh, it was the 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 world's tallest. Now those records kept falling because course, you know yeah. you had a, a couple decades with just tremendous uh, skyscraper building. But yeah, yeah. So I think it's interesting that he could also work in the medium of you know monumental buildings, skyscrapers, and things like, decorative things like a fountain. You know, amazing. So. The Detroit Public Library, like libraries everywhere, is forced to evolve and change. Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit, Johanna. I know you're, as a philosophy professor, um, you have a lot of experience with education. And what is your feeling on the future of libraries? Yeah, I mean, I have some, I'm not an expert on this for sure, because I have librarian friends who would be mad that I was talking about this as an expert. but um, So I'll just say that, and they can talk more to the future well, of libraries. But what's your opinion? Uh, yeah, I mean, for sure. Like um, now, I love going to, into libraries for research as an academic, mm-hmm. right? And to I like the smell of the books and how it feels in the library, and to, I get excited it's quiet. Uh-huh. All of those mm-hmm. things that you can learn, you know, in the books. And I say, mm-hmm. oh, they have this book and this book, you know. But now libraries are more evolving um, to be centers for social services. Um, sure. And especially to um, be meeting places um, for many people. And um, also, like, there's a lot of homeless people, right, that go into libraries. Right. Um, and the library can be a jumping off point for them um, in terms of access to social services or just in terms of a warm place to sleep um, or just in terms of a break because it's hard um, on the streets, right? Um, in terms of social services, I know that the Detroit Public Library has this tip line mm-hmm. um, and they do have social workers there. Um uh, and the tip line gets them access to different um, organizations around Detroit 
and that they can do. And then they have this hype teen center, um, which sounds really cool. Um, that works. It's a gathering place for the teen center, but there they have a maker space for the um, the teens, oh, and that's then great. also a bunch of services for teenagers, like how to fill out your FAFSA. Um, your financial aid form for college, which if you are a new immigrant to the United States and your parents don't speak English, you are not going to know how to fill out a FAFSA, right? I wouldn't mm-hmm. know how to fill it out right now myself, No, actually. it's actually so, – it's really difficult. It is right? difficult. I would imagine it's it would be complex. very complicated. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And so in terms of access um, and in terms of class mobility, um, having access to someone that can help you fill out the FAFSA is huge. Um, right. It's a first step in knowing how to go to college, right? Um, and then they have computer classes um, and computer literacy classes at the library. Um, and it's also not everyone has access to a computer, right, at home. You, mm-hmm. And not everyone even has or a smartphone, Wi-Fi. right, or Wi-Fi. Yeah. Um, and so we sort of take that for granted, but it's not really a foregone conclusion that you'd have that at home. And so to be able to go to a place where you can it's have free Wi-Fi and do research um, on jobs and finding a career and um, have access to all those that stuff like – Having access to the internet right now is having access to um, moving up in the world. You it's can't have that. Yeah. You cannot go um, it, it absolutely to a job is. without it's, having it's access. It's power. To the it's a stepping stone. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Tip stands for the information place, and so it, it okay. really, yeah, and it, it, it so it's a wonderful clearinghouse and a way of referring to all these different kinds of resources. Uh, for people that might not be able to find those on their own, right. you know. So, Johanna, Ed, myself, Linda, I know us, and I know we are book lovers. Yeah. And I have such fond memories of going to the library as a child. Mm-hmm. I would. Me too, for sure. I would be so sad if that were not a place that children could go to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of kids groups down there. You know, mm-hmm. you see school children and, and they do a lot of, of um, programs. They do uh, arts performances. Uh, they have like evening concerts, uh, chamber music, things like that. Uh, sometimes in, in, you know, like interesting settings around that gorgeous building. Um, but yeah, um, for children, I think it's so it's important. constantly yeah. They're con- do you do you remember your favorite children's book as a child? Well, I I read everything when I was a kid. If if it was in the house, I read it. I read absolutely everything. But I remember loving to go to the library. I mean, if I think back, I can still remember how it smelled, and you know, just the mm-hmm. feeling of. Oh my gosh, all these books are here and they're all free. I don't have to buy them. And I remember my parents would kind of yell at me, why are you taking all these books out? Because I love reading. That's why. And my parents were not super big readers, but I was, and that was my absolute favorite thing to do. And I also remember the bookmobile, which is still a great idea. And mm-hmm. we have a book remote mobile where I live mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's still a wonderful thing. Um, I, I just think books are so great. And there's something about a library. You go in and you see the possibilities. You're not looking for something specific a lot of the times. So you're just looking and, 
you know, you get an idea, oh, my gosh, this looks good. This looks interesting. Plus, librarians are the best people to recommend books to read for pleasure. They <laughs> their are. Their book lists yeah. are the best. And every year, you know, NPR comes out with their book list that you should yes, read. and they, that's right. They go to the librarians. It's it's great. I love it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a noble calling. Mm-hmm. Um, when I in, – in the early 90s, I did my second master's and it was in a humanities program through Central Michigan University and um, uh, I took a course on on architecture actually and uh, it was taught in Detroit in a classical old church, um, the first congregational at uh, Forest and Woodward and uh, by a wonderful, wonderful professor named Michael Farrell, an art historian in Detroit. Um, But uh, as a – as one of my papers, my final big paper, I chose to do the Guardian Building, which we've talked right. about. Yes. And so when I was doing some of the research on that, I decided how how perfect it would be to actually do my research have, as my research base, the Detroit Public Library. So I sat up in the – is it the Strom – Room or I forget one of the big huge rooms, upper, upper and levels, uh, yeah, yeah. Upper, upper level with that magnificent ceiling and those great windows, and um, actually had all my stuff spread out on the desk. And it, you know, the materials I used were original sources. You know, I would go and I would find things written at the time, articles from the news and the free press and the older papers like the Detroit Times and on. The building of this so you could see, you know, what they were saying at the time as it was being built, as it was being proposed, when it was first received, you know. And uh, this is in the late 20s and um, they were all the original sources. So that was great. I mean, I loved incorporating those. Oh, for sure. Yeah. What do you remember, you know, going to the library as a child, Johanna? I think what you said about the possibilities, um, like the sense of – a landscape of possible, a horizon of possibilities. Of the greatest know? things in the world. All books. the things that you can learn, mm-hmm. possibilities, and just, um, uh, yeah, I'm just hanging out there. You know, my students, though, so I teach college, and my students, like, don't spend time in the library much. Um, and so I tell them, though, if you want to get work done, you know, you want to go read, the best place is to go sit your butt in the chair in the library mm-hmm. and don't go on Facebook or in, they're on Instagram. Don't go on Instagram right. or whatever else. Um, and you have to turn your phone off and you read. And this is the way, like, you have to sit in the library and read. And they're 100% more productive when they go. There's a de- dedicated place to read in the library rather than they're doing it here and there, mm-hmm. you know. It has that effect. You're not I, easily distracted. Mm-hmm. I definitely found that at Oakland. I mean, go I wasn't the always the greatest student. But when I actually said, okay, I'm going to go and spend my time at the Kresge Library, that was when I was the most productive. And, you know, I think that there is so much value in being within the midst of beauty. For sure. And the Detroit Public Library is so perfect for that. It is a beautiful building outside, inside, outside you have the gorgeous architecture, Mm -hmm. inside you have the murals, you have the grand staircases. That is such an important like mindset 
Right. It almost gives you something to like live up to, you it know, does. <laughs> like a standard. It set, elevates. You know? You so know. I'm going to be better because I'm here. Right. And I have these. Mm-hmm. It, and it, it's also the repository of some very cool things. I mean, I hadn't realized. I, I did know a couple of these, but um, it's got the original deed to Belle Isle. Oh wow! You know, I mean, the original deed, and and part of it is actually written with. Um, um, Indian totems. Oh, you know because it was uh, actually acquired from the uh, Ottawa and Cherokee tribes, and uh, by this General McDougall, who was, has a street name for him, uh, and then um, it it was uh, owned by the Campo family, and they donated it to the library. Okay, so so there's this great deed. Um, George Washington's diary of the first uh, six months of his presidency is in the Detroit Public Library. Is in the Detroit the actual the actual diary? Wow! In his, that he actually wrote Isn't in longhand. Great. What does and, it say? I uh, made a bad decision. Yeah. <laughs> my teeth hurt. <laughs> my teeth hurt. I, I love that. Yeah. I actually did tell a lie that one time. I feel bad about that. Right, right. But I, I think there are things about, you know, some of his insecurities and stuff. But he, he's also talking about because, you know, it, uh, he, he had gone on, on this trip west to the frontier and we were the very edge of the frontier then. Yeah. So I mean, he's make, make, that's good, the connection to Detroit, but oh. but it's his reg, it, it is his regular diary yeah. of that whole period. Uh, he talks about um, having lunch with um, Alexander Hamilton. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and describing that, you know. What did, do you course, remember? What that he said about that? No, mm-hmm. I don't. But I mean, now Hamilton's a rock star, so that would be <laughs> really interesting. There you go. That would be yeah. interesting. <laughs> we um, had a weird night last night. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was so weird last night. Yeah. And uh, the, the way we have it is that um, uh, the first president of the Packard Motor Car Company was Henry Joy, that oh. has the road, Joy Road, Joy named road. for him. And uh, he acquired that. I mean, a lot of these things wound up in private hands and then they were donated and that's how it got into the public domain. And so Henry uh, Joy donated it to the library with the stipulation that it could never ever under any circumstances ever leave Detroit. And he specifically said, you're not sending this to Mount Vernon. It's, oh going to, it's going to stay in that's Detroit. Great. So that's why it's here instead of, you know, with the other Washington archives in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, I, You know, I think that it's a, you could go on a treasure hunt in the Detroit Public Library and find some unbelievably amazing things and learn so much and just have fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people don't have to take a library super seriously. They can just kind of go and wander around and meander and see what you're going to find. Right. And, and you don't soak always have to in. be so quiet in the library either. You know, like I have a baby now and it's really nice to go with the baby in the library. And I'm like, and I like the little children's space and all of that. So the baby can roll around. And I don't think, I don't think it's a place anymore that you have to worry about being so quiet. Oh, there's, them. there's a regular, um, uh, daycare center, uh, part of the Rochester Hill, Rochester Public Library. Is there really? Um, yeah. Oh, I mean, you can blocks and I mean play areas and 
you know, tra- it, it is. It's it's just this. It's set up for kids. It's set up for kids. And, and I love the sto- I love the story times for kids yeah. at the library. No, that's sure. great. It really is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's here's an interesting thing, Linda. We we were challenging each other a few broadcasts before um, about some little arcane fact. Um, what is there in the uh, Detroit Public Library that has to do with um, the reason for? Abraham Lincoln having a beard. You have stumped me, Ed. <laughs> okay, this is too good. Um, Lincoln didn't used to originally have a beard. He was this tall, lanky guy. And when he was uh, campaigning in 1860, this little girl in Chautauqua, New York, uh, saw him and was so impressed. But she wrote him a letter. And the letter said... Uh, Mr. Lincoln, oh, I think you would you'd be a wonderful president, but more people would vote for you if you grew a beard because the ladies really like that. Oh, my gosh. And um, so he was doubtful, but then he decided to give it a try, and he wrote back and said, I'm going to actually grow a beard. And hence we have – And we've the got class, the letter. The, and, and the letter is in the uh, – the Detroit Public Library. That is fabulous. Yeah. In That's... fact, it was um, it, it was purchased by George A. Don Darrow, who my high school was named for. He was oh, a really? Michigan. He was a Michigan congressman, and uh, you know, Detroiter. And um, he donated that letter to the library in 1969. So we all agree the Detroit Public Library is a wonderful, wonderful place, and uh, it does have. Some upcoming future excitement uh, surrounding it with this um, plan that the Detroit Institute of Arts and Midtown Detroit have put together to um, link all of the cultural center buildings. Right. Um, it's a design competition. And they're going to be uh, announcing the winner of that competition uh this winter, they've narrowed it down to three firms. They've narrowed it down to three firms. Three international firms. You know, they want to engage the public year round on the grounds, improve wayfaring, walkability, connections between all of the nearby cultural institutions, which are, as we've said, you know, the Charles Wright Museum, the College for Creative Studies, the Detroit Historical Museum, the Detroit. Library, the Hellenic Museum, the Michigan Science Center, the Scarab Club, mm-hmm. and Wayne State University. Yeah, there's like 14, I think. So are, what do they mean by connections? Like bridges between there or tunnels or like physical uh, connections or like well, connections in kind terms of, of – Kind of both, but yeah. ways of landscaping that might be different that would allow easier access. I mean we know that Detroit has traditionally had a lot of barriers to getting around on foot. And they want to make that easier. And I think um, they want, you know, kind of more open, you know, uh, areas for people to gather, mm-hmm. outdoors and, you know, seatings. And, you know, I just think improve the general appearance of the entire area and link it, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of times, you know, we'll I'll go to a specific Location. I'll think. Oh, yeah. There's the Wright Museum over there. I didn't realize it was so close. And right. you yeah. know, so I, I think it's going to be very exciting. 
I want to see what their plans are. I'm dying to see the plans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, three firms will make their public presentations on January 23rd, 2019 at the DIA. I think we're going to be there. To I'm going to be in Florida, but I, I want you to uh, fill me in. I will fill and, you in, yeah. and then they're going to announce the winning team in March of 2019. So uh, that's going to be great. It is. Uh, one of the things Detroit, you know, as as the library system uh, grew, and of course Detroit reached its largest population, I think, in the late fifties. They built just an immense number of um, satellite libraries, you know, branches, right? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, with the downturn and with the drastically declining population, a lot of those had to close. And a lot of them um, are very beautiful, but buildings some of also. them are still mm-hmm. open and they're gorgeous. Yes. And they and there's also interest and money being put into renovating some of those. Two of my favorites are the one that's up on Oakland Boulevard, the uh, Francis Parkman, which is just fabulous. It's like this Tudor. It's all in Tudor style. It's wonderful. Um, and my very favorite, which is the Skillman Library, which is, which right, is right downtown. downtown. Right in the middle of downtown. It's, it's, it was behind – it was hidden behind the old Hudson's building. And um, it's an interesting – it's a, combina- a mashup of classical and Art Deco style. The inside has all kinds of Art Deco elements and it's on – you know, Judge Woodward's plan for downtown Detroit meant that you had some really strange-shaped blocks. And this the is spokes. on this skinny little triangle that really you couldn't put much else on except no. this wonderful small library. And uh, Opportunity. right now at this very moment, it's under renovation, but it's going to reopen new and improved. And now with so many people living downtown, oh, yeah. what's better than having a local library that you can walk to? Oh. When I was a kid, um, like in fifth, sixth grade, I loved to read and I would go downtown on my own, actually take, well, maybe the streetcar, but probably bus. And um, I would just read down there. And, sure. Yeah. Libraries are a great place to hang out and learn something. So, yeah. So those – I think there's a movement to, um, you know, expand that just from the the main library but to uh, rejuvenate the local branches too, which is going to be great for the the neighborhoods. Well, I want to thank Johanna. For coming on the show yeah, as our guest. Yeah, so fun. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> and I want to thank all the listeners for joining us on our journey into Detroit's past, present, and future. We invite you all to explore the Comeback City. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Tim Brohart for our great intro music and Katie Cunningham for our beautiful logo. There's, there's always new things to uh, discover in Detroit. 